0: I grew up in a church that would be almost the opposite of what you just saw. It was extremely conservative in its worship style. And so it it looked kind of like this. This isn't a a picture, but this looks a whole lot like the church that I grew up in. And I remember a choir coming in, and and this was a big-time choir, like Mormon Tabernacle-style choir. And I remember them coming to the crescendo and the climax of their presentation. It was loud and booming and bam, and just everything got silent. And you could hear crickets chirping. There was there was there was no clapping in my church growing up. That just it just did not happen, and and it, w- it was the opposite of what you saw. I, uh, I I'm always kind of jealous of preachers like that because it, sometimes it's hard to fill 20 minutes of space with stuff to talk about. And all you got to do when you're a preacher like that is when you talk about going up on the mountain, then you just say, "I'm going up high, 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 high on the mountain." You can just say things over and over, and it just fills the space. It's extremely it's pretty it's pretty practical as far as filling the time and when i got to college i i i I'd had a lot of spiritual transitions in my life and wasn't sure what to believe or why to believe it. And I, 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 I met some people in college that were, were helping me answer a lot of my questions. And the church I ended up going to in college was that kind of church. Uh, the, the pastor was a guy named Jerry Henley, and Jerry Henley could shout. I mean, I, he, he, could, he could go high, high, high on the mountain just every single day, all day long, pretty easily. And I even remember Jerry pulling out, he was, he was doing a sermon on David and Goliath and when he when he, he reached the part where David had knocked down the giant he reached down in front of one of the church pews and he pulled up this big papier-mâché giant's head that he that had been cut off with blood and everything and just started doing doing some more yelling and it, it was very it was very demonstrative in this church it was loud uh, people clapped people prayed in tongues out loud and it tripped me out a whole lot at first. Uh, but there was something about it that kind of endeared it to me as well. I, I kind of thought if God is the God of the universe and he really has done what the Bible seems to claim that he's done, it seems like something you ought to get excited about. And so I I have this blessing of coming from this hybrid background uh, of, of a more... Uh, Conservative kind of cerebral view of faith, and then a real emotional, exciting view of faith. And I'm 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 thankful for my entire background that I came early on to love the Bible and what Scripture taught, and then that I also learned to express emotion and and enjoy God. And and what I found was in that second church there was there was this huge emphasis on the Holy Spirit, and a lot of times you'll hear the Holy Spirit referred to as the redheaded stepchild of the Trinity. It's kind of the the uh, the, the, the one redhead in the room laughs. Thank you, Sydney. Um, it, the Holy Spirit is kind of the third person of the Trinity that doesn't get a whole lot of attention. I, I heard recently the Holy Spirit compared to a family photographer. And like, like my, my, my wife's mother hates to be in pictures, but she's a professional photographer. So we have all these family photos, and Jenny is in none of them. And the Holy Spirit is kind of like that. It's, it's, it, he he kind of takes a background position where he emphasizes the Father and the Son and makes the Father and the Son look good, but, but kind of gets ignored in a lot of circles. And I don't want to be a church that ignores the Holy Spirit, but I want to be a church that kind of understands the Holy Spirit and invites the Holy Spirit into our lives. Now, before I get into who the Holy Spirit is and talk about that, I, I want to mention a quote that I saw recently. And it, the quote went like this, The presence of God is disconcerting. And this, this last week, my little daughter, who's two years old, has strep throat. And so she's shared a bed with us for a couple of nights, which we normally don't allow at all. But uh, we, have a, we have a three-month-old and a two-year-old in the bed with us. And so the three-month-old is with my wife, and the two-month-old is up against me all night. And she starts with her head on the pillow and then ends with her feet in my eye. It's that sort of thing. And scratched me all night with her nasty claws. And it was just it was just terrible. But as a father, there's this there 's this concern that I'm going to roll over onto her so I didn't sleep at all you know I mean a two year old you could damage and when I when I think about God and how God is with us and I think about what if the two year old was the size of a dime or what if the two year old was the size of a pinhead and how how dangerous would that be to be up against me and when we talk about God that's the it's even way way beyond that He is so big so magnanimous so uh, beyond us, that it seems like we're in a precarious situation just to exist be- because of him. If he had one evil or mean bone in his body, we would be ruined. If he sneezes wrongly, we're crushed. I, you know, God is just so big that if you really start to wrap your head around him, it's disconcerting. It's, it's a little uncomfortable. You can, you can get lost in thinking about the vastness of God. And when you think about the vastness of God and how amazing He is and how awesome He is, and then you start looking at some of the principles of Scripture, what Scripture seems to say that we should do. And I would encourage you to take your phones out, forget Pokemon, but take a picture of this slide and look look these verses up later. Because Scripture seems to indicate that we're supposed to think like God. That we're supposed to have the mind of Christ. that, That our minds are supposed to be conformed to His. We're supposed to act like God. Scripture even says things like, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He's completely unrelatable and yet it says act like Him. It says that we're supposed to be like Him. We're supposed to be transformed in His image. And it says that we're supposed to relate to Him. We're supposed to know Him. But when you think about how disconcerting this God is that's so awful and awesome and huge and fearful and amazing all at the same time, this seem, these seem like impossible demands. It just seems absolutely impossible that we could even, in any way, shape, or form, even slightly relate to the God of the universe and the God who created the universe. And so when we talk about the Holy Spirit, in my opinion, I view the Holy Spirit as the one who bridges the gap between us and that awesome God. It's, it, it, the Scripture teaches that, that the Holy Spirit is our helper and our comforter. It means we can't do it. We can't be like God. We can't relate to God. We can't think like God or act like God. But the Holy Spirit in us can do really amazing things that we couldn't possibly do on our own. So I see that as the job of the Holy Spirit. If you you read Scripture from the very beginning, verse 2 of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And it says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the very opening of the universe, it says the Holy Spirit was there. And if you flip to the back of the Bible, the last page of the Bible, the last chapter of the book of Revelation, it says this, "...the Spirit and the bride say come, and let the one who hears say come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price." So in the very opening verses of the Bible, you see the Spirit of God hovering over creation. In the very closing verses of the Bible, you see the Spirit of God saying, Come, all of you who are thirsty, come. The Holy Spirit is a a massive part of Scripture. And we don't want to ignore the Holy Spirit. And so... When we talk about what does Scripture say, we're going to get into a whole lot of Scripture today. Because the Holy Spirit and teaching on the Holy Spirit, people, you can come across as a little kooky. And there are a lot of people that are kind of kooky out there when it comes to the Holy Spirit. And I want to make sure that what we talk about is firmly grounded in Scripture. And so we're we're going to talk about a lot of Scripture today. Jesus seems to describe the Holy Spirit as a person. We th- a lot of times we think of the Holy Spirit as this nebulous force that will be with you always, and, and it's kind of just out there floating around. But Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as a He. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. And if you go into the Old Testament, the Spirit of God is often embodied as wisdom, and wisdom is often embodied as a her. It says, she and so there's there's this feminine aspect to the Holy Spirit as well. But all throughout Scripture, you get this idea that the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force, not a cloud, but a person, like a being with an essence like we have. And so, what kind of person is the Holy Spirit? Well, if you continue to read Scripture, this this, this puts the Holy Spirit in a pretty exclusive club. When Jesus talks about baptism, he says, Go and baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's a big deal to be included in that trinity. When, when Jesus says this is who you're supposed to be immersed in, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is right there with the Father and Son. There's this terrible story in the book of Acts. It's the, it's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. If, you've, if you're a New Testament reader, you've heard it before. But like we talked about a couple weeks ago, in the early church, the Christians would sell all their stuff and then they would bring it to the disciples and they would lay it at their feet and say, do whatever you want to with it. They would just say, we're a part of this community. We trust you. Here it is. And Ananias and Sapphira, they sold some property, but they kept some of the money back. And they hid it. And then they lied about it. And they said, oh, yeah," because Peter even asked is him, this, is this the full amount? Which I try to get away with that as a pastor. But he says, is this really the full amount? And Ananias is like, yeah, heck yeah, man. It's, it's every penny, every penny of it. And, that's, and then Peter says this, he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? He says, you're not lying to man, but you're lying to God. So Peter says the Holy Spirit is God. You get Jesus putting the Holy Spirit up on a pedestal with the Father and the Son, making Him God. You get Peter saying that He's God. And then the, author of the authors in the New Testament often refer to the Holy Spirit as the Lord. And if you're dealing with Jewish people and you refer to the Lord, they know what you're talking about. They're talking about Elohim, Yahweh, Jehovah, the the God of gods, the one God. And they refer to the Holy Spirit as the Lord. It says, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord... Who is the Spirit? Now I know th- there's this Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. He 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 says about the Holy Spirit, this: He's not merely a sacred influence, but a divine person, very God. Of very God now I know that wrapping your head around the Trinity is difficult there's there's no question about it if you you know Muslims will often ask how does one plus one plus one equal one it doesn't make any sense it seems like a logical fallacy to even believe in the Trinity and I I agree it's it's a very challenging question Uh, probably one of the most difficult questions in my opinion that that Christians face but I I do want to say this You wouldn't expect the God of the universe, this disconcerting, amazing, fearful, awesome, amazing God, you wouldn't expect him to be something we could wrap our minds around. You you wouldn't expect him to be in a category that we could just say, okay, this is what he's like. Now, I think when you get into the multidimensionality of God, I think the Trinity is is explainable in a sense. But it, it ain't easy. But there's all kinds of things in life that aren't easy to explain. For example, who are you? Like when we talk about the brain, are, are are you your brain? And if you're if you are your brain, are are you just the chemicals in your brain, or is there something else there? Or are you your body? Are you your mind? Is, do you have a spirit? Uh, in in the book. Um, Benefit of the Doubt by Dr. Gregory Boyd. He talks about an experiment they did on people with neur- in, in uh, neurosurgical situations. And what they would do is they would stimulate portions of the brain of the patients that would cause physical reactions in the body. So they would go in and they would stimulate a portion of the brain that might make your arm do this. And then they would ask the person, did you do that or did we do that? And every time they were able to get it right. So their arm goes like this and they'd say, that wasn't me. Or their leg does like this and they'd say, well, that wasn't me. You did that. And so there's obviously some external force that's applied to our brain chemistry that we can be aware of. We are outside of our brains in a sense. And, and I say all that to say that personality, consciousness, all of it is very mysterious. We would expect that God would be far more mysterious than that. But when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about one person that is very God of very God, one part of the Trinity. And I saw uh, my favorite illustration I've ever seen of the Trinity is this. And when we think about the Trinity... We, oftentimes when we think of the Father, we're talking about the creator of the universe, the big dog, the guy, you know, up in the clouds and looking down and kind of removed from all of this and yet powerful and sovereign over it. And when we talk about the Son, we're talking about what they call the incarnation. We've used that word in here a whole lot. Incarnation meaning incarnal, carnality, in flesh. So it's the Father, the God, who became flesh and dwelt among us, as John, as the Gospel of John Tells us. But when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about I, I, somebody referred to the Holy Spirit this, this week, I, I, I heard, as God on ground level. The Holy Spirit is God right here in us and among us. So Jesus is in, in carnal, he's, he's incarnate, he has a body, but the Holy Spirit is, is available to all of us at all times and all places. And what we find when you read Scripture and you talk about the interactions between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is that the Father reveals the Holy Spirit to us and gives the Holy Spirit to us through the Son. And the Holy Spirit glorifies the Father also through the Son. And so you've got, you know, this is the symbol for infinity. This is very God of very God. It's everything. It's absolute. It's it's awesome. And yet in it, you find this interaction where the Father is filling us with His Holy Spirit so the Son will be glorified, so the Father will be seen, so that the Son can be seen. And it's this amazing relationship between the three, that they say are three persons, one being. Uh, again, it's a mystery. But what we want to do and what we want to be very careful about is we don't want to ignore the Holy Spirit. We can, we can get to where Jesus the Son and where the Father are the focus of our worship, focus of our Christianity, and kind of leave the Holy Spirit as the family photographer in the background that, that never shows up. Jesus said, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will glorify me, which we've, we've read this verse already today. He will glorify me. So that's the job of the Holy Spirit in us is to make the Son look good so that we can understand what the Father is like. Now at the beginning I talked about how can we think like God? How can we act like God? How can we be like God? How could we possibly communicate who God is or even do a good job? When we even use words, we destroy our ability to talk about God appropriately. Words don't do God justice. I know for a long time in my life, I had this sense that I was failing in Christianity, that I was sense that I was failing God, or I wasn't adding up, or I wasn't meeting His expectations. And the reality is, I can't possibly ever. It's disconcerting. I can't be like Him, and yet the Holy Spirit was sent to us so that we can try to be like him, that we can connect with him more intimately. And I think about the disciples. So this is, this is a very famous painting of, the, of, of Doubting Thomas. Uh, and, and, you know, of course, Thomas said, I'll believe that Jesus was resurrected when I can see the holes in his hands, when I can see the spear wound in his side. And this is a painting of him finally getting to examine that spear wound when Jesus appeared to them. And right after this, if you read Scripture, Thomas falls to his knees and says to Jesus, My Lord and my God. It's when when he sees that wound and he can stick his finger down in there and say, This is real. This is really you. That he's able to proclaim, Wow! And kind of relate and kind of connect. Now to me, that ought to be good enough. I'm thinking if something like that happens to me, if a dead man comes to life and I see him and I'm able to touch the wounds and I know he was dead, I I saw what happened to him, I'm thinking at that point I can go out and I can tell everybody. I'm thinking that would empower me. If you see miracles, you know, they saw Jesus walk on water. They saw him touch blind eyes, saw them healed. I'm thinking that's enough. But Jesus made it pretty clear to them that it wasn't enough. That wasn't enough for them to do the mission that God had called them to. To do Instead, he says, I'm going to send to you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So they've seen these miracles. They've seen him resurrected. They can relate to God to a sense that most of us probably couldn't. And Jesus still says, wait. Don't go tell everybody yet. He says, something's going to happen. The promise is going to come. While staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said... You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And he's referring to back when, when John, uh, John the Baptist was preaching. And John the Baptist talked about Jesus coming and said, he says, there's this guy coming. And he says I'm not even worthy of un- un- undoing this guy's sandals. He says, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So Jesus is referring to the teaching that John the Baptist said. So basically, you've got these guys. They've touched the wounds. They know he's resurrected. They know it's all gone. They ought to be empowered. And Jesus says, not yet, guys. Instead, you're going to go wait for this baptism of the Holy Spirit is, is how it's described. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You guys have heard about Pentecostals and the word Pentecostal raises all kinds of feelings and thoughts in all kinds of people, I get that. But the word Pentecostal comes from, there was this old Jewish feast called the Feast of Pentecost. It was one of three major feasts in the Jewish calendar. And in Jerusalem, all the adult males from all over Judea were expected to come to this feast. So Jerusalem is absolutely packed. You've You've seen the pictures of Mecca during Ramadan where there's people everywhere pressed shoulder to shoulder. That's what Pentecost would have looked like in Jerusalem that day. And it says on Pentecost... It says, the, the disciples, so they've, they've seen it, they've experienced it, but they haven't been released yet. It says, when the day came, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I'm a believer that this encounter that the disciples had continues today. Now, I get it. You start talking about speaking in tongues, and people are like, okay, that's just a little bit too much for me. I'm, I want to share you my, with you my experience about Pentecost and about speaking in tongues. It makes me nervous. It does. It, it makes me uncomfortable. I'm a super cerebral guy. I grew up in a pretty cerebral church. It's, it's odd to me. It's uncomfortable to me to stand up in front of you. But I've had this experience that absolutely revolutionized my life, and I want to share it with you. I was at Murray State University, and... Uh, There we go. Murray State University. I don't know what call the ref just made, but they don't seem too happy about it. And I had been reading the Bible and reading the book of Acts in particular and parts of 1 Corinthians and reading about some of the other miraculous stuff. Now, I grew up in this pretty conservative theologically and and worshiply, if that's a word, church and, and was seeing that in scripture there was all this other stuff that I, 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 I was missing kind of. And so I was talking to my campus pastor one day. His name was Mark. I consider him one of my mentors in life. And, and just off the cuff, I said, Mark, have you ever spoken in tongues? He said, oh, yeah, every day. I thought, that's the weirdest thing I ever heard in my life. And, uh, and then he said, and you can too, come over Thursday. I thought, thought what does that even mean? And so I showed up at his house, and you'd have to know Mark. Mark was a guy that had dedicated everything to Jesus. Uh, he, he owned like three outfits, and he just <laughs> rotated through them because he just wasn't—he wasn't concerned. He, he had these open-toed sandals that we all ended up. His name was Mark Randall. We called him the Randall sandals. I mean, and. But he, he, he didn't much care about anything except people falling in love with Jesus. And so I showed up at his house that Thursday. And I, all I remember of his house is that it had 70s wood panel walls. <laughs> and this was the 90s. And so um, it was a, he, he didn't have a TV, no radio. So you're in this quiet house and all you hear is the clock ticking. And that's the environment that Mark spent all of his time when he was alone, just this quiet place. And he, he so he sat down with me and he opened up the Bible. And he started showing me some of the scriptures about this Pentecost experience. So in Acts chapter 2, you see that this encounter happens with the disciples. And about 3,000 people come to become followers of Jesus that day because they're all standing around shoulder to shoulder when they see this happening. And they hear people speaking in their foreign languages and it just blows their minds. And about 3,000 people say, sign me up that day. Something really miraculous and amazing happens. But as you read through the book of Acts, you see that this experience, this encounter with the Holy Spirit, it doesn't happen just the one. And I would encourage you to take a picture of this slide, too. And, and I'll be talking about these verses more as we go on. Uh, for the sake of time, I decided not to dissect all of this. But I would encourage you to go through the book of Acts and see if, if it doesn't show that this encounter in the book of, of Pentecost, it happens multiple times. And it happens to people who are already believers. So you've got at the end of the book of John, Jesus appears to the disciples And he says to them, he says, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathes on them. And most Christians consider that what they call the moment of regeneration. Uh, it's, It's the moment of from death to life or of rebirth, being born again, is when you receive the Holy Spirit. And yet what you find in the book of Acts is those same disciples who received the Holy Spirit, who experienced regeneration, there was something else. There was this other encounter that happened that took them to, to a new level. It took them to a new uh, boldness. It took, gave, them, gave them new power. And you see that throughout Scripture. In Acts, in Acts chapter 19, they go to believers. It says they're disciples. And they say to them, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they say, what are, you, what are you even talking about? We don't even know what you're talking about. And they say, oh, well, we ought to tell you about it. And something miraculous happens in their lives. So that night, in, the, in front of the wood panel sides, with the clock ticking, it's quiet. I'm in Mark's living room he he explains the scriptures to me he says do you want this and I say yeah of course of course if if there's more I want it and uh and so he starts praying for me, and I start crying and snotting all over myself. And, and uh, I'm just saying, God, I want everything. I want anything you've got for me. I don't care. I don't, I'm not going to be embarrassed. Just anything, whatever, whatever, anything you want. And he, Mark, Mark kind of what they call prophesies over me. He says, H.L., he says, I, I want you to know, he says, that I think the Father... Wants, wants you to understand that he wants to be a father to you. He, want, he wants to be like a father to you. Because I lost my father when I was eight years old, and so now I can watch an Affleck commercial with dad stuff, and I'll start... <laughs> and so I'm sitting there crying because God wants to be my father. And, uh, you know, I always wanted a dad. I have dad issues, there's no doubt. And, but, uh, you know, there's this expectation of speaking in tongues and that, that's not happening and I feel like it should happen and there's this, there's, there's something there that's kind of in my brain and I'm thinking maybe it is but I'm too afraid to speak it out or let it flow or what, however you want to describe it and so we pray for about 45 minutes or an hour and I'm crying and sobbing and snotting and, and I end up leaving his house with very little seeming to occur. But there's this thing there, and and maybe I was crazy, maybe I'm still crazy, I, I get that. But I leave the house, and I start saying these words. It's just like three or four syllables, and I start saying them over and over and over. I go home, and I go I go back to my dorm, I, I'm a, a Murray State student, so I go back to Hart Hall, which is the building you see, the tall building on the left is the one to the right of that. I'm in the sixth floor of that building. And I go back to that building, and I sleep, and I'm saying these words over and over, thinking what if i'm crazy this is this maybe nothing and i go through the next day i go to class and i barely remember the whole day because i'm in like this fog it's like something something odd and weird is happening and life just is it is different. It just so, I can't explain how it was except to say there was a fog. And I went through the whole day. I talked to my girlfriend about the experience and said this is what's going on and I'm just I don't know what to make of it and maybe it's all just stupid. And I go back to bed that night and I get in the bottom bunk. I have a room to myself, but I have bunk beds. And so I'm laying in the bottom bunk and I'm staring at the top bunk. I've had so many encounters in in bunk beds. It's amazing. I'm laying in the bunk and I'm staring up at it and I'm saying these, whole, these words over and over and the only way I don't know to describe it is that it happened. Something happened right then, right there and I was able to and started to speak in a language I had never spoken. I'm, I'm speaking in tongues and man it is, it is there. It's whoa, whoa, whoa. And I'm like, whoa, this is crazy. And maybe it is crazy. I'm thinking that. Maybe this is just something ridiculous. And Finally managed to get to sleep that night and I woke up the next morning and this is just a Photoshop experiment, but this to me sort of illustrates what happens to me because I've always said the next morning colors seemed brighter. It's it's the only way I've known how to describe it. it something happened that night, and I started speaking in tongues, and I've spoken in tongues every day since then, and I it's like the next day, everything in the world made sense. Before that, I was having a hard time relating to God, feeling disbanded from God, or cast out from God, feeling like I could never add up, feeling like I had no courage, feeling like I, I, I could never be what He wanted me to be. And the next day, everything seemed all right. Everything seemed all is well. I, I had some kind of an encounter and some kind of an experience. Now, it, was it bad cheese? Was it insanity? I, you know, I still don't know for sure. I, I can't stand up in front of you and tell you that I know that I know that I'm not just a complete whack job. I don't know this, okay? But here's what I do know. Everything changed for me that day. Everything. I'm, I'm a believer in it. I might be wrong, but I am a committed believer to it. There's this book called Full Gospel Fractured Minds by Rick Nanez, I think is his name. And in, and in this book, he talks about Pentecostals and intelligence and how often in Pentecostal circles wacky stuff happens. And he, he tries to present a kind of a balance between being a, a cerebral Christian and being a Christian who's open to God doing miraculous and wild stuff. And he says this, he says, Our goal then is to continue to fan the fires of Pentecost with passion, while at the same time endeavoring to cultivate the gardens of our minds with care and persistence. And I hope and pray to be that kind of Christian. I want to be a Christian that's open to whatever God wants to do. I want to be a Christian that's unafraid of what God could and and would do, but I I also don't want to be just an off-the-wall loony tune. I I, I can think of just some of the wackiest, craziest stuff I saw in Pentecostal circles throughout my life that makes me very uncomfortable. My old pastor used to call them "stupid human tricks." It's just—it's just these. There's there's a lot of emotion tied to Pentecost. There's a lot of emotion tied to Pentecostal experiences, and I'm not saying all of those are bad, but I'm saying we need to sort out. What is emotion and what isn't? What is what is God doing stuff and what is people responding to the presence of God and all that stuff? I want I want to be a thinking Christian that also speaks in tongues, and I, I'm I'm convinced that I, I'm convinced through the, a, a, a line of a chain of belief that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And if Jesus was resurrected from the dead, that a lot of the Bible does make sense. You can, we, we have a whole series called "Can You Have a Brain and Be a Christian?" That you can look out on our website to kind of hear that line of reasoning. But I'm a believer in it. I feel like as a pastor who's experienced it, I would be at fault not to share it with you guys. As you can see, you know, we've been here a year and a half, coming up on two years. This is the first time I've talked about it. Um, you know, we we are committed to majoring on the majors and minoring on the minors. I consider Pentecost a major minor, which means if if you're here and you completely disagree with me, you're here and you say, well, I interpret scripture this way. You're still absolutely welcome here. And you're not going to hear me driving at home with you all the time saying, you got to believe this, you got to believe this, you got to believe this. However, I'm also going to be a guy that'll stand up and tell you this revolutionized my life. And I could right now point out a whole bunch of people in the room that would say the exact same thing. I see people nodding at me right now. Some of you would be tripped out. It's just some of your friends that speak in tongues every single day. Uh, I, I know people all over the world that have had a similar encounter. And it, the colors seem brighter the world made sense life kind of fell in line when this experience happened so now when i think about this disconcerting god and how big and amazing i don't have to freak out anymore because it's not me connecting with him relating to him acting like him being like him thinking like him instead now it's the holy spirit in me that's that's transforming me and and shaping me it's 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 out it's out of my control it's It's somebody else. Now, I say all that, and I want to be very careful to mention what 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. 1 Corinthians 13 says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, a lot of times in the New Testament when you hear people being baptized in the Holy Spirit, it says they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Uh, many times those two things come together. So that's what Paul's talking about here. He says, if I speak in tongues, even if I prophesy, if I have the mouth of God, I speak what God says. He says, but I don't have love. Even if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith, I can remove mountains, but I don't have love. I am nothing. So I want to make it very clear. As far as I'm concerned, the major, major is this loving, amazing, incredible God that wants to love people like His children, that they are His children. He wants them to know Him. He's revealed Himself through the sun. However, I also think that he wants to do something in our lives and shape us and change us and mold us to where his presence doesn't have to be disconcerting. We don't have to feel far away. We don't have to feel like he's distant and scary and awful, but instead we can experience him God on ground level. And that's what the Holy Spirit is, is God on ground level. Now I'll close with this quote from T.S. Eliot. It's in this poem called The Four Quartets. He says, The dove descending breaks the air with flames of incandescent terror, of which the tongues declare the only discharge from sin and error. The only hope or else despair lies in the choice of pyre of pyre, to be redeemed from fire by fire. You know, we talked early on about the Trinity and, and the magnanimous nature of God. And... We wouldn't expect the process of thinking like God or the process of being like God to be an easy process. I I, I think once you understand the vastness of God, to think that we could even relate to him in a tiny way seems completely inconceivable. And we would think that the process for us as mortals to connect with immortality would be a challenging process. See, a lot of us, we want to make Christianity out to be pretty comfortable. We want it to be something that that we can do on Sunday mornings and kind of categorize and and put in this in our little spiritual religious box. But this idea of fire consuming us, man, we want none of that. So I get up here and I talk about my experience. And and it's, it's okay if you want to search the scriptures and talk to me about it and dice this out and figure it out. And even if we come to different conclusions, I'm still okay with that. But let's not be people that run away from stuff because it scares us. Let's not be people that run away from God and experiences with God because uh, it's just overwhelming for us to think about. it. And that's what T.S. Eliot is saying in this. He says the process of being rescued is a process of everything melting off of you. The process of being redeemed and, and being, becoming everything that you were created to be is a process of God destroying everything that hinders you. And that's an uncomfortable process. And so if you kind of squirm in your seat today and say, I don't know about all this, I'm okay with that. But don't let the squirming be what controls you. Don't let the fear be what controls you. So here's my challenge to you and here's my encouragement to you. We're going to have a nightlight service this Friday. We're going to talk more about those passages that I skipped. We're going to give people the opportunity to what they called receive the Holy Spirit. We're going to pray for people to receive the Holy Spirit. you, you may or may not want to show up at that service. Right now you may think that's the last place on earth I want to be. I understand that. But some of you, man, this this I, I talked to a friend recently and laid all this out for her and said the same, same response I had, do you want this? She said, why wouldn't I want that? So even if it scares you, even if it freaks you out, I would encourage you to show up at that service. Come and see if God if God will do what God seems to say he will do in Scripture. And secondly, I would encourage you to dive into the book of Acts. Read the book of Acts and see if this doesn't gel with you. you can't, I don't think you can read the book of Acts and miss it. It's, some, it's something that God wants to do in our lives. It's something that God continues to do in our lives. It's very real. It's very powerful. And it will revolutionize your life.